You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Ask what principle Martin Luther put at the center of his Protestant Reformation theology, and you'll get several good answers. Justification by faith alone, the primacy of scriptural authority over ecclesial authority, the theology of the cross, Philip Carey offers another answer to that question, one that is distinct from, yet fundamentally connected to, those other answers. In his book, The Meaning of Protestant Theology, Carey traces the steps of Luther's theology to their roots in St. Augustine, showing how the self-consuming, introspective turn inherent to the Augustinian way is overcome when Luther discovers the power of the gospel as an external word that gives us Christ. I'm David Grubbs, and in this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, I'll be talking with Dr. Philip Carey, professor of philosophy at Eastern University and the author of The Meaning of Protestant Theology, Luther, Augustine, and the Gospel that Gives Us Christ, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Carey. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I really enjoyed this book because I'm interested in well, all three persons who appear on the cover, Luther, Augustine, and Christ. <laughs> yes. And I'm also interested in a fourth person who's not on the cover, but who you started with, Plato. Ah, yes, okay. And Plato's legacy in the development of Christian theology is, uh, I think, a mixed one. And yes. I'm, I'm accustomed to seeing him pitched as a villain. Mm. And you do find uh, find some fault with Plato, uh, the way that Plato's philosophy underlies, uh, especially Augustine's theology. But it's That's not right. it's not in the usual way that I've come to expect it. Ah. So, what good in Plato does mm. Christianity inherit, and what what does Augustine get from Plato that uh, you did just as well he left? <laughs> okay, right. Um, so the rubric for, for uh, dealing with Plato as a Christian, I think, is critical appropriation. Uh, that's the label I'll use. And appropriation means we're going we're gonna to take some of this stuff and, and take it as our own, but we're also going to be critical about it, meaning we're going to ask how much of this is really true. Some of this is not true. We'll, we'll shed some of it. Um, the people who make Plato into a villain are people who tend to confuse him with Gnostics who make the body into something evil. And there are moments when Plato actually says that, uh, especially in the Phaedo, but then there are other moments where he says the whole physical world is an image of of the divine. Um, And you could think of it in terms of this famous allegory of the cave where there's shadows of real things on the wall. The shadows lack substance, but they have a shape that comes from the real things of which they are images. And that's the way the whole of Platonism works, is that the, the world that we see with our senses is like an image or an imitation or a reminder of something higher and better. And by and large, the world is not evil, although we can get too stuck on lower things instead of higher things. So you've got a whole spirituality here of ascending from lower things to higher things. We've got a, a view of the world in which, at least in one of Plato's moods, the, the, the world of the senses is a good place, uh, and it's, it, it comes from God. Uh, the Timaeus, and especially Christians, will have loved the Timaeus, which it tells a creation story, or something like a creation story. And so there's a lot of this stuff that can be appropriated and used. 
And I don't think Plato is some kind of Gnostic dualist who simply says the body is evil. But Plato doesn't know Jesus. Jesus is born uh, 400 years later. Um, he doesn't know how God has come to us. So in the allegory of the cave, you've got this picture of, of the soul rising up out of a dark place and into the light. And that's a journey that can be a, a model for the spiritual life of Christians. I, I think it is the model for spiritual life of Christians in Augustine. But it misses something. It misses how God comes to us. And Augustine has a place for how God comes to us in, in Christ and in his lowliness. Augustine loves to talk about the lowliness of Christ coming down to us. But he's still thinking ultimately that Christ comes down to us in order to bring us back up. And so the, the fundamental journey of the Christian life for, for Augustine is this long journey upward into the light. Whereas I think Luther is right that the fundamental point about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God in this one man, is not how we can rise to God, but how God descends to us. So I, I, I imagine a, a, a Christian modification of this allegory of the cave in Plato Imagine that instead of arising out of a dark cave into the light of the sun, imagine that the sun itself, up in the sky, the source of all light and life and being, comes down into the cave. The sun itself, S-U-N, coming down to the, into the cave. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten son, S-O-N, of God, as if the supreme good itself could be nailed on a cross for our salvation. Plato could never have guessed. It's not his fault that he didn't know about this. But since it has happened, everything else needs to be reorganized around that reality. And that means that everything needs to be reorganized, not around our journey to God, but about uh, God's coming to us in Christ. But that is not the track that Augustine follows. Not really. That's my criticism of Augustine, right? Um, now, I, I do this with a certain amount of trepidation because Augustine is smarter and a better Christian than I am. Um, but he wants people, and especially Christians, to think critically about his writing, and I do. And I say, look, the, the, the basic model for the Christian life is not our journey to God. It's God's journey to us. So there's a certain kind of passivity that Luther gets it's all about receiving what God has to give. And we do that simply by believing the story that God tells us about who he is, which is the story called the Gospel, which is the story that gives us Christ. And that gets us to the, to the subtitle of the book, the, the Gospel that gives us Christ, which I think is the great theological uh, underpinning of Protestant theology. Yeah. So Augustine's epistemological turn. Um, uh -huh. his, his, his story that favors uh, this uh, ascent towards the vision of an ultimate truth. Right. Now, you, you critique it, um, mm -hmm. especially in light of Luther's focus on uh, what is said to us in the gospel. Right. Uh, the one of the questions that I had is and I and I think I think that what you're saying helps me to uh, um 
wrestle better with something that that has always kind of stuck in my craw with Augustine, and I couldn't quite label what it was. Um, on one hand, the Bible does frequently contrast faith and sight uh-huh. uh, with a, a promise of of one day seeing face to face in w- right. whatever that is. Right. Mm-hmm. But also. In in reading De Doctrina uh, Christiana, Augustine talks about um, the one who has faith, hope, and love, sort of with maturity, not needing scripture, because that's right. Because faith will go away, and and one day all will have is love. And I start to get skittish at that point. Um, right. Is is the is that thing that's rankling to me there? Is that is that getting at what you're critiquing? Yes, um, from a from a different angle than I've mentioned so far. Um, I think the angle that you're getting at is well epistemological, as you mentioned, and um, one way of thinking about um, a deep divide in epistemology that's relevant here is to think about the difference between seeing and hearing. Uh, Augustine loves visual metaphors for knowledge. Uh, he, he thinks, you know, ultimately we're going to see God with our with the eye of our mind, uh, not really the eye of our body. Um, but with our, our mind, and it, it's like this. We even have this word insight, uh, or when you, you yeah. understand the truth for the first time, you say, "Ah, now I see it," right? And that's the kind of thing that Augustine's hoping will happen with God as ultimate truth, the truth that contains all that's immutably true, is one of his many labels for God. That's what he hopes to see with his mind, and that becomes, I think, the Roman Catholic notion of the beatific vision. The, the vision of God that makes us ultimately happy. Now, I think that works just fine if you're thinking about mathematics, but it doesn't really work as a way of thinking about people. People are not, you, you can't know people just by looking at them. You have to listen to them. You have to hear what they have to say for themselves. Um, if, someone, if someone you love tells you something about themselves that you didn't see for yourself, you should believe them. Right? Othello should believe Desdemona and not Iago. Yeah. Uh, I should believe my wife, and we should believe the gospel. Luther, in contrast to Augustine, is all about hearing. Right? There's very few visual metaphors in his thinking. It's, it's over and over again. It's hearing. It's like hearing a favorite song, hearing your beloved make a promise, and listening to your beloved say, this is who I am. This is what I have done for you and for your sake and for the sake of the whole world. Just believe this, and then we can go on from there, because this is like a, a, this is like a wedding vow. This is the, the, like the wedding vow by which our bridegroom and beloved gives himself to us. Um, and that, that, I think, gives you a whole different epistemology, and from that, a whole different spirituality. Yeah, that's good. You use the phrase... Uh, divine carnality as a ah. as the opposite of human spirituality um uh, to talk about well to talk about something that you've already said was unimaginable to plato and uh you think underutilized by um augustine yes i think underutilized by augustine and and, and not just by augustine um there are protestants who miss this point too but they shouldn't because Luther sort of hammers it home all the time. Um, the, the human spirituality is, I think, fundamentally that spirituality of ascent, of arising out of a dark cave and into the light. 
Um, and that's Plato was already there. And, and I think that's the, the fundamental structure of spirituality in Augustine, and also really in Thomas Aquinas, um, because it culminates in this vision. Um, the vision of God is truth. And there's some truth to that. Yes, there is, you know, God is truth. Um, but you first have to hear him, because God comes to us as a person, uh, in the person of Christ. And you can't know him without hearing the story, without hearing his promise. Uh, and that's divine carnality. Um, you know, human spirituality ascends and divine carnality comes down. You could think of it like the story of Zacchaeus. You know, he's climbing up a tree because he wants to see Jesus. And he wants to, it's like he's ascending to go up to see God. And then here's Jesus walking on the earth, right, lower than Zacchaeus, right? Yeah. And the very first thing that Jesus says to him is, get down from there right away, Zacchaeus. I want to eat with you. As if to say, how am I going to have dinner with you if you're up there? I'm down here, right? <laughs> now, again, Augustine gets like 90% of this, right? He loves to talk about the lowliness of Christ. It's a real come down for God to, to be, become one of us and be crucified on a cross and die. Um, but for Augustine, that enables uh, an ascent. Um, it's there to, to, to lead us out of the cave. I think it's there to, to, to just change the nature of the cave, the, the whole nature of the story of human existence and the whole cosmos. Uh, and so that's, at the center of it is this divine carnality. At the center of it is Christ incarnate. Uh, and that's why we have to listen, because not only is God a person, but Jesus Christ is himself, a human person in exactly the same way we are. You can't know somebody if you haven't listened to them. Uh, just like, you know, Plato could never have had any beliefs about George Washington, so he also he cannot believe in Christ because he's never heard of him. Um, but when you hear of him and believe him, then unlike George Washington, what you're receiving is the person himself in the flesh. And of course, well, that, that gets to issues of Eucharistic theology and so on and so forth, because Christ came in the flesh to give himself to us in the flesh through the hearing of faith. Yeah. One of the other things that you want to critique in Augustine and then hold up Luther as the sort of appropriate balance for is right. Augustine's turn to the inward. Um, uh -huh. His his uh, obsessive introspection, um, especially thinking about confessions, but it's not just confessions. It bleeds over into um, yeah. pretty, mu pretty much everything. Um, he ends up uh, I, I appreciated your chapter on the Trinity for mm. simultaneously defending Augustine um, from some of the critiques of his uh, psychological metaphors for understanding right. what's happening in the Trinity, while at the same time saying there's something going wrong here. Um, uh, what about that inward turn? Uh, yeah, that's... That's where I started when I was uh, becoming a, an Augustine scholar 25 years ago now. I, my first book was uh, Augustine's Invention of the Inner Self. Um, there's an inward turn in Augustine, um, partly because if you, what you want to see is God with the eyes of your mind, you're not going to see that in the physical world, in the world outside us. Um, the world outside us is beautiful because God made it, but it's not the beauty we ultimately want. And so we're going to have to find God somewhere else. We're going to have to find God in a more inward and intellectual and spiritual realm. That's, that's Augustine's view. Um, and, uh, and he thinks, he will even say that Christ came to, to turn us to find Christ within 
as the eternal word and the eternal wisdom, right? As, so as if Christ became incarnate so that we could sort of follow him away from the, the world of incarnation and the flesh and, and to this eternal vision. You know, and there's, Augustine believes in resurrection of the body. Um, he doesn't say that we're going to leave the body behind. But ultimately, it's this intellectual vision that it's about. Um, whereas I think it's about sharing life with Christ in the flesh, which is why the Eucharist is, is central. And the Eucharist becomes this, this outward turn. If you want to find God, you're going to have to find him in bread, says Luther, because that's where he said he's going to be. And you should follow his word and, and find him where he says he's going to be. Oh, I should add, you mentioned uh, this striking thing that Augustine says in the um, um, De Doctrina Christiana, on Christian doctrine, that those who are built up in faith and hope and love don't need the scriptures anymore. Now, that's really striking. Um, he, later on, he has to back off from that, because the Church is always going to be needing the scriptures. Yeah. And, and so the need for the authority of the Word is permanent. That, that was a crisis in Augustine's thinking when he realized, oh, I'm always going to have to be teaching and preaching and learning this Word, um, and I can't ever say we're going to sort of graduate beyond learning the Word of God. He realizes that, but he still thinks in the kingdom of God, in the beatific vision, we do get beyond words. I would say this, um, faith does result in sight, but what we see in the final vision is that God keeps his word. Uh, I love to quote Julian of Norwich about this, a 14th century uh, English visionary, who says, um, well, she sees Christ uh, in her inner vision, and he says to her, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, and you shall see yourself that I yes. will keep my word and make all things well. And I think that's just, that just is spot on, right? That, that just gets it. What we will see is that God keeps his word. Gosh, one of the uh, there's there's I I feel when as I was reading this book and as I'm entering into this conversation, uh, I felt like uh, a hound who'd wandered into a field and he'd jump at a bush and then eight rabbits would run out. <laughs> and right now, uh, you, you are you are hearing <laughs> you are hearing my my paralysis as I decide which rabbit which rabbit. Which rabbit trail do you want to go down, huh? <laughs> oh, because they're all good. Um, okay. We should say something about Augustine's uh, Augustine's ideas about the relationships of signs to what they signify. That seems right. super important, but also Augustine's uh, inward turn as it becomes a kind of um, uh, almost paralyzing self-analysis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, Augustine, as he gets older, um, he keeps on having to deal with, you know, the scriptures and, and the sacraments and the, the, the way the church does things. So there's more and more of the external life of the church that he has to talk about. And that, I think, is good for him. It's good for the church. And Augustine's such a smart guy that, that uh, he, he deals with it very, very well. And people sometimes don't notice that the inward turn is still underneath it all. Um, and one way you can see that is precisely with his talk about signs, um, his semiotics, as, as you can you, you, uh, use the kind of technical term for it, it's theory of signs. Yeah. And for Augustine, um, well, Augustine invents a whole lot of Western semiotics, 
but it's at an early stage where all signs for Augustine are external. Later on in the Middle Ages, they talk about mental signs, but there are no such things in Augustine. A sign is by definition external and physical. And two different kinds of signs that are very important for Augustine are words and sacraments. And he classifies both of them as signs, and they both have that same structure of an external sign that signifies something inward. Um, words signify uh, essentially thoughts or maybe uh, your will and desire. And sacraments signify, well, they fundamentally a sacrament for Augustine signifies the inner life of the church, uh, a shared inner life of love for God. But they can also, a sacrament can also signify grace. And that's the thing that the middle, middle um, the medieval church picked up on. There's, there's sacraments as signifying grace. But what they what Augustine doesn't say, and what the medieval church does say, is that sacraments are not only um, signs of grace, but they confer grace. That the, that the sacrament is not just um, a, a signif- um, doesn't just signify the grace that helps us, but it confers it. That's a medieval uh, addition to the Augustinian legacy of sacraments, and that's the place in which to see where, where Luther's coming from. Luther thinks that an external thing, such as the Eucharist or the Word of God in Scripture and preached can give you the gift that it signifies uh, when you receive it in faith. And, and that's the, the basis of his outward turn, um, which really Augustine doesn't have a place for. He's always wanting the sign to direct us more inward. He thinks that what, that's what the real function of these signs, both, both Scripture and, and sacrament, their real function is to direct our attention inward. For Luther, their real function is to give us Christ in the flesh. And that's a different way of thinking. It's more of an outward turn than an inward turn. Is that why even the the incarnation and the uh, the divine economy that is the gospel story, uh, even that is a sign that is um, a, a step out from the reality that we really need to go to, get back to for Augustine? For Augustine, yes. Um Augustine will say there's a, there's a very complicated moment in the Confessions where he says that that Christ ran his race in a hurry so as to call us back to the heart. This is in, in uh, Book Four of the Confessions to call us back to the heart and find him there. Meaning, when we turn back to our own hearts inwardly, we will see that that's where we can find the eternal wisdom of God, which is Christ as as eternal Word and wisdom, and that's what we're looking for. Right? Christ as man is fundamentally an example of how we're supposed to be going. Um, it, it cleanses us by, by, um, by the shedding of his blood. There's all sorts of things that his humanity does for us, but it, it's ultimately enabling that inward journey, which is also the journey up out of the cave. Whereas for Luther, what Christ does most fundamentally is just give us himself through these external signs. And, and what what Luther does that is scandalous to some Protestants and some uh, Augustinians is to say, you can be saved by hanging on to an external thing. Because if you hang on to the gospel for dear life, as if it could save you, then it will, because it will give you nothing less than God in the flesh, your Savior, who is your Redeemer, and in him all good things, including the righteousness of God. Yeah. Now now I think is the time to just jump straight.
straight into the heart of it as you as you started to do there. Okay. For for Luther, what is the gospel? What is mm. faith? And how does faith in the one give you Christ? Right. So the gospel is a story, but in that story there's the promise. So within the story of the gospel, which is the story of Christ, he makes promises. He says, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. Or he says, this is my body given for you. So that's a promise of Christ that's in the story of Christ that then becomes contemporary with us. It it, it enters into our own time frame when we hear it from the mouth of a pastor who's giving us a piece of bread and telling us where to find Christ right there in that piece of bread. That's how Luther thinks about how God gives himself to us in the flesh, through word and sacrament. So what, what, is, what is faith, and how does it give me Christ? Right, that's the second question. second part of the question is, yes. is what is faith, right. Okay, faith simply believes that what the word of God tells us is true, um, and thus receives the one who speaks it. It's, it's like believing a wedding vow where when you believe what your beloved says, you receive not just the word, but the person who, who, who gives you the promise. Faith, therefore, is this taking hold of a person through believing the word. It's very important that, that it's faith alone, says Luther, because here, here we're going to open up a very big can of worms. Luther has this tremendous performance anxiety that is common to many people in the 16th century. He asks, am I doing this well enough? And the answer for Luther is always no. You are never doing anything well enough to save yourself. Only Christ can save you. And thank God Christ has given himself to us in his word. So we just believe that his word is true. That's that's salvation by faith alone or justification by faith alone. It's justification because when we receive Christ, we receive also his, his justice and righteousness. But it's very important for Luther that you don't put any eggs in the basket of your performance. Uh, And that's why he says, you know, don't trust in your own good works. You are commanded to do good works by God, but they're for your neighbor. They're not there to save you. Don't put any trust in your good works to save you. And the subtle thing is that also means don't rely on faith. Uh Luther actually says that. Faith does not rely on faith. Faith relies only on the word of God. So Luther warns you not to rely on your faith, but but only to trust the promise. Because if your faith becomes a kind of of, of um, a kind of work, a kind of performance, then it, you can ask that same question: Am I doing it well enough? And the answer is no. Right? Um, I can give my heart to Christ one day, and then the next day I'm sinning and acting as if I didn't believe in Jesus. I do that a lot. This is called sin, and I have to confess my sins every time I go to church, and I do. Um, And it would be awful if I had to actually believe in my own belief and trust in my own faith and be confident that I'd really, truly given my life to Christ. Luther is allergic to that kind of thing for the same reasons he's allergic to, uh, you know, justification by works. Any performance of ours is going to be inadequate to save us Only Christ's work is adequate to save us. So don't try to rely on your faith. Rely on what faith relies on, which is the Word of God. Excellent. You excavated something in uh, in here that I had not previously connected, 
uh, which is I I noticed how in some places Luther would talk about sacraments as mm. the two, all right, baptism uh. and the Eucharist. But he would also talk a lot about the importance of believing the word of absolution. And so yeah. as someone who'd never read Luther systematically, but only the, those, those patches that I didn't really see fit together, um, I didn't know what you brought out, which is the relation he sees between the sacrament of, of penitence, of penance. Of penance yeah. and baptism. So how does, how does that connection help kind of bring to the surface the way that the way that Luther is applying what you've just said about the gospel and faith. Right. Um there's two prongs to, to my answer to this question. One is about how Luther Luther's how Luther's own thought developed because it was the word of absolution in the sacrament of penance that first gave him access to the promise of Christ. Um, there's a bunch of scholarship on this that, that I think is, is getting this story straight, um, and I'm following th- that scholarship. Um, here's Luther uh, arguing with people about, the, about indulgences in 1518, the year after the 95 Theses on indulgences. And uh, he has to talk about the sacrament of penance because that's what uh, indulgences are talking about. And um, as he's doing that, he's really thinking about sacraments for the first time in his career. Um, if you read... Luther, before 1517, he almost never talks about sacraments, because he's doing the inward thing far more obsessively than Augustine did, it turns out. So the young Luther is obsessively inward, and he's trying to to be really, really penitent and hate his sins and hate himself because he's a sinner, and he tells you that. It's it's self-hatred. It's what He actually says that in the 95 Theses. Repentance repentance is all about inner self-hatred. And then... He, he thinks about the sacrament of penance, and at some point um, in the middle of 1518, as he's writing about it, um, defending the 95 Theses, he says to he, he essentially says to himself, I guess I'm supposed to actually believe the word of absolution that is given to me in the sacrament of penance. When the priest says, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, that's a, 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 a word of absolution that is imitating the baptismal word. And Luther comes to the conclusion that it's based, you know, right on, on the promise of Christ in Scripture, what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and says, oh, well, that means I have to believe that my sins are forgiven, which means I, I have to stop hating myself, and I have to stop trying to justify myself by my self-hatred. I, 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 all I can do is just believe that Jesus isn't lying to me when he tells me my sins are absolved. So if Christ isn't lying to me, then I have to believe I'm justified and saved, instead of hating myself and trying to go through this performance problem. That was a huge discovery in 1518, and that's what led to um, the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And you can see that happening in 1518, and I try to tell some of that story in the book. Now, fast forward a couple of years uh, to the famous treatise on the Babylonian captivity of the church. It's one of his first major Reformation treatises. Uh, the previous stuff in 1518, he was still a monk. He was, he was still um, officially loyal to the Pope. In the Babylonian captivity, well, he's still officially loyal to the Pope, but he's, he's just about to, to <laughs> jump into a, the, the Reformation, really. And what he says is, um, 
he's going to say, well, you know, a, a sacrament has to be based on the promise of Christ in the Scriptures. And it also has to have an external sign. So Eucharist and baptism are sacraments, but marriage is a good ordinance of God, but it's not a sacrament. And so he gets he dispenses of four of the seven sacraments. And then he changes his mind about the sacrament of penance. This is fascinating. Uh, at first, he thinks of it as one of three biblical sacraments. And then at the end, he says, well, there's no outward sign. There's, there's just the word. Right? The, the sacrament of penance does not have a sign like water or bread and wine. So it's not really a sacrament, although it's certainly authorized by the promise of Christ. So he ends up saying, you know, what it really is, is just an extension of baptism. The sacrament of penance at the end of the, of the uh, Babylonian captivity, the sacrament of penance really is a sacrament, but it's not a different sacrament from bat- baptism. It's a renewal of the baptismal promise that, that God makes. Um, so to, 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 to repent and to take hold of the word of absolution is really just to return to your baptism. It's to go back to square one. And every time we go back to square one, that actually doesn't just forgive our sins, it, it strengthens us in faith, and that's how we make progress in the life of faith, is by constantly going back to square one. It's a little bit like practicing a favorite song. Every time you start from the beginning and sing it through, you're learning this favorite song. And the name of this favorite song for Luther is Jesus Christ. Go back to the beginning, to baptism, by repenting, hearing that word of absolution, and you're strengthened in faith, and Christ grows in you, and you become a Christian who's progressing, actually, in righteousness and faith. I had a pastor uh, once who would, in answer to, to questions of, of doubt, he would, he would say, I want to call you back to your baptism. Ah, but he never, he never fully unpacked. Um, I think what what he meant by that, and I think he must therefore have been. I think he he I think he must have been reading Luther. <laughs> yep, he was either reading Luther or some Lutherans because yep. um, the Lutheran tradition really gets that, and and we'll talk a lot about penance as returning to baptism. Yep. Yep. And the wonderful thing about that, then, is if you find yourself weak in faith and not living the Christian faith as you should, then you don't have to draw the conclusion, oh, maybe I'm not really a Christian. No, you draw the conclusion, oh, I've sinned, I need to repent and confess my sins, just like I do every morning. If I pray morning prayer in the Anglican tradition, I'll repent of my sins, because it is sin, right, if if I'm not believing as I ought. But every time I do that, I'm going back to the to the Word of God given to me in baptism that is the foundation of my faith, and that actually strengthens me in the Christian life. So instead of worrying about whether I'm really a Christian, I can go back in, in penitence and, and, and take hold of Christ once again, over and over and over again. And that's how you make progress as, as a Christian. We haven't got much more time left, but I really wanted to get to one uh, one chapter in here that uh, I found fascinating, and part of that is because I'm, you know, I'm an English professor, but I also have kind of a sideline as a Trinity junkie. Ah. And that was the uh, your 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 last chapter on on the Trinity that unpacks, I, I think, a lot of the implications of this Lutheran outward turn uh, that focuses on the gospel, on the divine carnality of of Christ, mm-hmm. and. Uh, 
and then applies that to what what do we do then with our faith in the Trinity? What does it what does it mean to profess the Trinity in this key? Right. right. Yes. Well, you you mentioned that a little earlier, and and um, I'm I'm tickled and, and pleased that um, you found the, the chapter so helpful because it, it's it theologically it's the most complicated chapter in the book I think um, because I had to get into the weeds about a controversy about yes. Augustine's thinking. Uh, and I think when Augustine's giving us essentially a, a logical approach to the Trinity, that he's one of the best out there. I mean, he really gets the logic of the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are people who try to attack him for you know, talking about the psychological analogies, and I think that's wrongheaded. Um, the Trinity is a little bit like our psyche. There's a word in it, right? The Father, um, God, Word, and Spirit. That's a little bit like an individual psyche. But it's also Father, Son, and Spirit, and that's a little bit like a society. So both social trinity and psychological trinity are inadequate images of the Trinity. Both are inadequate, and, and Augustine knows that. He, he knows about the in- inadequacy of, of images. So, so I think a lot of the criticism of Augustine is wrongheaded. But, once again, I'm a critic of Augustine on this business about um, ascending to God. Um, Augustine does have a project of coming to a greater and greater knowledge of the divine trinity in itself, um, in, its, in its trinitarian being. And he thinks he's very far away from actually arriving at that understanding, but he wants to make progress in that direction. And once again, I think, mm, you know, you're, you got the direction of it wrong. It's not about ascent upward. It's about descent downward. It's about divine carnality. Um, because the reason we have a doctrine of the Trinity uh, rooted firmly in the New Testament is because at the very beginning of the Christian tradition, uh, the earliest strata of the New Testament, as Richard Baucom and uh, has been showing us, Christians were worshiping this man. Right? Yeah. A bunch of Jews are worshiping this man. How can they possibly? How how can Jews possibly worship a man unless they think that Jesus is, oh Lord, as in he has the name of the Lord God of Israel, and that's his rightful name, and he rightfully sits on the throne of God, and he is God incarnate. And then, and, and you know, three centuries later, you get the the Creed of Nicaea. I think the Creed of Nicaea is an outworking of of Christian worship that begins yeah. uh, in the early church. But that means that the doctrine of the Trinity is about how God gives himself to us in the flesh of Christ, in this man who is the God whom we worship. And um, to, to, to think that it's all about knowing the Trinity apart from the Incarnation, or the Trinity in its divine essence, uh, that's missing the point. Uh, the point is that, that God has graciously shared our story, or rather caught us up in his story by becoming literally one of us and gathering us in through the body of Christ and his incarnation into the life of God. And so we, we have a doctrine of the Trinity because we have a doctrine of the incarnation. We have a doctrine of the Trinity because we have divine carnality and the descent of God. And and this, this project of ascent and going upward has, is kind of missing the point. Yeah, I, re- I really appreciated that because the the treatment of the Trinity that would uh, that would have 
sort of the 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 imminent trinity as the goal with the mm-hmm. economic trinity being the necessary way to the goal or uh an image of the goal which is in some way a divinely authorized trinity analogy and therefore mm-hmm. yeah. more useful than the psychological but still just yeah. a just a picture um yeah. but using this um you know the 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 Lutheran logic that you set out of some yeah. signs actually give us the reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, you take hold of the sign, you get the thing this, that the sign signifies. You take hold of the gospel, you get Jesus Christ Himself, because the gospel is His story by which we receive what the gospel has to give. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we have chased. Uh, Hard, hardly all, because I have respect for your time. <laughs> but well, we have you. we have chased many of the rabbits that I have wanted to chase in this, and they and they turned out not to be rabbits, but 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 lions and lambs and and all other holy, all sorts of other holy gospel images. But at, on Christian humans profiles, we always like to be hospitable and give our guests the last word. So what of what we covered or what we haven't covered in this book or uh, something related uh, related to this, this gospel that gives us what it promises, um, would you have our listeners to be thinking about as we round out this conversation? Okay. I think what I'd like to do is uh, speak especially to pastors um, and, and preachers, because Luther loved preaching and, and loved what the gospel uh, preaching could do. Um, preachers and pastors have authorization from God, from Christ himself, to give people good news, to give people a kind and gracious and comforting word from God himself. And I would urge pastors to, to take advantage of that authority rather than to do this thing which is often done in preaching, you know, telling us what to do, as if that's how you apply it to your life and how you're relevant and all that kind of nonsense. I, I think relevance is boring, um, or at least the attempt to be relevant <laughs> is boring. Right? I, I wrote that in a previous book, as you may know. Um, yep. it, it, this is this law-gospel distinction that Luther insists on, where law is God telling us what to do stuff. And he does that, you know, when God tells us what to do. But none of that saves us, and none of that is the good news that gives us Christ. So pastors, I think, have often been trained to think that in order to be relevant, they've got to give people something to do. But that's a mistake. Right? Their fundamental task, in addition to preaching the law, yeah, you can do that. that. That can be helpful sometimes. But their fundamental task and authorization is to give people Jesus Christ in the flesh. So um, I, I often say there's a a, a correction we could make to a key uh, or to a, a favorite little um, saying. Uh, some preachers will say, uh, preaching the gospel is telling is one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And that's a near miss. It's almost right. But if you tell someone where to go and they're starving to death, they might starve and die before they get to the bread. Yeah. So you don't tell a beggar where to go to get bread. The gospel is one beggar giving another beggar the bread of life. And you can see that happen at the communion rail every Sunday. One beggar giving another beggar the bread of life in the flesh. Uh, You don't have to to tell them where to go or what to do. You can actually give them what they need for their salvation and their comfort and their joy. 
So um, let us all take advantage of that wonderful privilege of giving Christ to people in the preaching of the gospel. That's lovely. Thank you for that. And thank you yeah. for coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to it for many days. Ha! Okay, well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Very, very welcome. Dear listeners, I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation as well. We've been talking with Dr. Philip Carey about his book, The Meaning of Protestant Theology, Luther, Augustine, and the Gospel that Gives Us Christ. The book is published by Baker Academic. There will be links to that in the show notes when they post at christianhumanist.org. If you want to give feedback on this episode, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post on our Facebook wall, uh, or you can post in the comments to those show notes on the blog. In the meanwhile, uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. And I'm David Grubbs, your host, asking you to be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. <laughs>